Hello and happy Monday and thank you so much for joining me. I am your host, Madam Butterfly, and you are listening to Frequency Bay. So, uh, it looks as though for the last few days I've just been doing the wrong shit. Just a bunch of the wrong shit. Um, I recorded some of the wrong, um, information and the wrong videos. Um, and I got one of the videos mixed up with a different one. Um, it makes a lot of sense as to why I, I fucked up because I have been fasting for the last few days. So I haven't been as, I, I don't know, I guess prim and proper as I usually am. Um, but anyway, yeah, I basically just wanted to get into the correct topic this time. Uh, and we will do that. So, uh, without further ado, let me just, uh, So the first topic is, um, on, well, today's topic, or the topic that I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, the topic that I've been doing is uh, the debate topic about AI uh, the last few days. But the one that I'm supposed to be doing is um, how the internet failed and how to recreate it. And this is a lecture done by Mr. Gerard Lanier. And... Um, This was a lecture that was um, done back in 2018 when John, uh, when Jerron Lanier visited UC Santa, Santa Cruz and explored how the internet as it exists today might destroy our world and develop and, and in development in developmental countries. Its arrival has corresponded to bizarre political dysfunction while in the developing world. Uh, ethnic rivals that have been warning hmm. um, that have been warning have been reignited in the most grotesque fashion. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The internet has supposed the internet was supposed to empower people and enrich culture and democracy. What went wrong was based on a simplistic, uh, nerdy philosophy. The solution can be uh, discerned, and it involves creating and strengthening, um, creating and strengthening social, uh, societal uh, structures that are in between giant tech platforms and individuals. And um, this particular lecture is on YouTube, and it's brought to us by the UC San, Santa Cruz Arts Lectures and uh, Entertainment. And without further ado, let's hop right into it and see where we go from there. Yeah.
students here, or is this all? This is the, the adult. Oh, okay, good, good. Ah, good, excellent. There are a few of you here. Um, I, I'm going to start with some music because um, some of what I have to talk about is not the most cheerful stuff because our times aren't universally cheerful lately, and uh, music is how I survive anyway. Uh, any of you heard me play this thing? Okay. You all know what that is, right? Yeah. Um, it's called a can. It's from Laos. Um, it's arguably the origin of digital information. Uh, if you look at it, it's got a parallel set of objects that are either off or on. There's 16 of them in this one, 16-bit number. They go back many thousands of years. They appear to be older than the abacus. In ancient times, they were traded across the Silk Route from Asia and were known to the ancient Greeks and Romans. The Romans made their own copy, which was called a hydralis. And it was a giant egotistical Roman version that was so big it had to be run on steam. It was operated teams of slave boys because despite Hephaestus's best efforts they didn't have computer AIs yet and the slave boys couldn't quite operate all the planks that opened and closed the holes and sink and so they developed this crossbar system and we know about it because there's a surviving hydralis believe it or not and that automation evolved uh, along with the hydralis in, in two directions. It turned into the medieval pipe organ, and there were player mechanisms on the earliest pipe organs experimentally. And it also turned into a family of string instruments that had uh, various assists, like the early pre-clavichord instruments that eventually evolved into the piano. The notion of automating these things was always present so there were always attempts to make player pianos. Around Mozart's time, somebody made a non-deterministic 
player piano, which meant it didn't play exactly the same thing twice. Mozart was inspired by that, made some music that included dice rolls. But another person who was inspired was a guy named Jacquard, who used a similar mechanism to make a programmable loom. That, in turn, inspired somebody named Charles Babbage to make a programmable calculator and his daughter Ada to articulate a lot of ideas about software for the first time and what it meant to be a programmer. And then in turn, that all inspired a doomed fellow named Alan Turing to formalize the whole thing and invent the modern computer. So there's a direct line. This is it. This is the origin of digital information. Now, of course, it's not the only line. And if I was, if I was paid to be a historian, I wouldn't have told you that story with such authority. And yet I'm not. <laughs> so this is a, a charming tale. It's a happy place to begin. It's a, it's a reminder that inventions can bring delight and joy. And it's part of why I'm a technologist. But unfortunately, we have some matters to discuss here that are not um, quite so happy. We live in a world that has been darkening lately. Um, it's not just a historical lensing effect where it feels worse than ever. It's bad in a new way. There's something weird going on. And I want to begin by trying to distinguish what's going on with our present moment of darkness as compared to earlier times. Because this is tricky. It's almost impossible, I think, to not be embedded in one's moment in time. It's almost impossible not to have illusions due to where you're situated, right? And so I don't claim to have perfected the art of absolute objectivity at all. I'm struggling, and I'm sure that I don't have it quite right. But I want to share with you my attempts up to this point. Now, the first thing to say is that by many extremely crucial measures, we're living in spectacularly good times. We're the beneficiaries of a steady improvement in the average standard of living in the world. We've seen a lowering of most kinds of violence. We've seen an improvement in health in most ways and for most people. It's actually kind of remarkable. In many ways, these are really good times. And those trend lines go way back over, over centuries. We've seen steady improvement as society has kind of gotten its act together. And we've been able to hold on to a few memories about things that didn't work. So we've tried new things. We've, we've developed relatively more humane societies and relatively better science and better public health. And it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's something that's um, a precious gift to us from earlier generations that we should be unendingly grateful for. Uh, and I always, I always keep that in mind. I always keep in mind that just in our modern human-made world, just the fact that you can walk into a building and it doesn't collapse on us is a tribute to the people who made it and the people who funded them and regulated them and the people that taught them. There's like this whole edifice of love that's apparent all the time that we can forget about. And during times that feel dark, 
one of the antidotes is gratitude. And just in these simple things, I feel extraordinary gratitude. Um, and it reminds me of how overall there's been so much success in the project of science and technology. It's so easy to lose sight of that. And yet there is something really screwy going on that seems to me to be fairly distinct from previous problems. It's a new sneaky problem we've brought upon ourselves and we have yet to fully invent our way out of it. So what exactly is going on? I think at a most fundamental level, we've created a way of managing information among ourselves that detaches us from reality. I think that is the most serious problem. If the only problem was that our technology makes us at times more batty, more irritable, paranoid, um, more mean-spirited, more separated, more lonely, if that kind of problem was what we were talking about, that would be important, it would be serious, it would be important to address it. But what really scares me about the present moment is that I fear we've lost the ability to have a societal conversation about actual reality, about things like climate change, the need to have adequate food and water for peak population, which is coming, the need for dealing with changes in the profile of diseases that are coming. There's so many, so many issues are real. They're not just fantasy issues. They're existential, real issues. Climate above all. And the question is, are we still able to have a conversation about reality or not? That becomes the existential question of the moment. And so far, the way we've been running things has been pulling us away from reality. That scares me, and I think that's the core darkness that we have to address. We can survive everything else, but we cannot survive if we fail to address that. Now, in the title of this lecture, I promised a little bit of history, how the internet got screwed up or something like that. So I'll tell you a bit about that. But I want to focus more on trying to characterize this issue a little more tightly and trying to explain at least my thoughts on how to remedy it, and maybe some other people's thoughts too, try to give you a bit of a sense of it. Now to begin with, um, one of the infuriating aspects of our current problem is that it was well foreseen in advance. <laughs> That's the thing about it. Nobody can claim that they were surprised. And I can point to many folks who were talking about this in advance. Um, a good as good a starting place as any is to talk about E.M. Forster's story, The Machine Stops. Who here has read it? Okay, well, a few people. Terrifying, right? All right, The Machine Stops was written, I believe, in 1907. Is that right? It might have been 09. Um, but, you know, a century and a decade ago or so. And it foresees a world remarkably like ours. It's a world, and this was written well before Turing well before any of this stuff, I mean, before there was computation. And it describes a world of people in front of their screens, um, interacting, social networking, doing search, and getting lost in a bunch of stupid bullshit. And 
finally, when the machine experiences a crash, there's this calamity on Earth, and people become so dependent on it that the loss of this machine becomes a calamity in itself. And at the very end of the book, people are crawling out from their screens and looking at the real world and saying, oh, my God, the sun. <laughs> and it's like this... Um, it's a really amazing piece because it's possibly the most prescient thing, prescient thing that's ever been written at all. It was written in part as a response to the techie utopianism of the day. It was a response to writers like H.G. Wells saying, wait a second, <laughs> these are still going to be people. We have to think about what this will mean to people. It's often the case that the first arriver on a scene has a clearer view and can have this kind of lucidity that later people find it very difficult to achieve. And I think something like that happens very long ago. But then, honestly, we could talk about Turing's last writing just before his suicide, where he was realizing that even though he played as great a role as anyone in defeating fascism, he hadn't defeated fascism at all, because here he was being destroyed for his identity. Um... You all know the story of By now, it's not obscure anymore. There was a movie and everything. For a long time, I would speak to computer science classes, and nobody knew about Turing's death at all, which is a scandal. But at this point, I think everyone knows. And if you read his final writings, you read this kind of, in a way, an inner glow of somebody who does have some kind of a faith and some kind of a stronger center, but also this kind of sense of defeat. And by the way, it's within the context of that that he invented artificial intelligence, that he invented the Turing test and this notion of this person who would transcend, this non-person who could transcend sexuality and be just this pristine, abstract, platonic being and escape oppression, perhaps. But anyway, so we have that. In the immediate early generation of computer scientists, we had Norbert Wiener, who here has read Norbert Wiener. I don't see a single young person's hand up, I don't think. If you're young, if you're a student and you haven't read any of these people, would you please correct that and read them seriously? You'll, you'll be so happy if you take this advice and actually read these people. So Norbert Reiner's one of the very first computer scientists, first generation, and he wrote books that were incredibly prescient about this. He wrote a book called The Human Use of Human Beings, and he pointed out if you could attach a computer to input and output devices interacting with a person, you could get algorithms that would enact adaptive behavior technologies to take control of the person. And uh, he, he viewed this as this extraordinary moral failure that to be avoided. And he has this thought experiment at the end of the book where he says, well, you could imagine some kind of global system where everybody would have devices on them attached to such algorithms that would be manipulating them in ways they couldn't quite follow, and this would bring humanity to a disastrous end. But of course, this is only a thought experiment. No such thing is feasible because there wouldn't be enough bandwidth on the radio waves and all this. You know, he, he then explained why it couldn't be done, and of course, we built exactly the thing he warned about. Um, I could give many other examples. Um, I, I worked on it myself. In 92, I wrote an essay describing how little AI bots could create fake social perception in order to confuse people and throw elections. Big deal. Lots of people were prescient about this. This wasn't a surprise. We knew. And that's the thing that's so depressing. Um, there was a lot of good cautionary science fiction, there were a lot of good cautionary essays, there were good cautionary technical writings, 
and we ignored all of it. We ignored it all. How could that have happened? So um, <laughs> I, I, um, I would rather tell the story about how everybody was surprised. And a lot of people who are entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley were surprised, but only because they don't like reading. Don't be like them. So the social history of how everything screwed up is a reasonable way to talk about the particular way in which it screwed up. So I'm going to give it a try. The first thing to say is that in the generation of media technologists and artists and viewers from immediately before computation went pop in like the 60s into the 70s into the 80s, some of the personality dysfunctions and some of the craziness was already apparent. We started to see this notion that anybody could be a celebrity and people became obsessed with this idea that maybe I could be one and maybe there's something wrong with me if I'm not. And this kind of um, mass media um, insecurity obsession thing. Um, I, um, it's hard to trace the moment when this personality dysfunction really hit the mainstream and really started to darken the world. Um, we were talking earlier, actually, about what moment to choose. I was thinking, actually, the assassination of John Lennon, because here you had somebody who basically just wanted to be famous for being able to be a, kill, a random killer, and that was a little new. If you look at crappy, evil people earlier, sure, there were some who wanted to be famous, I don't know, Bonnie and Clyde or something like that, but there are a few different things about them. One thing is that they were also stealing money. There was a kind of a way in which they were, I don't know, there was some kind of a part of a system. They had peers. They weren't, they weren't typically total lo uh, loners. Uh, the most typical profile of a really evil person before was actually a hyperconformist. The typical Nazi was actually somebody who didn't want to stand out, who just was going with the flow and, and fully internalized the, the social milieu around them and, and because it felt normal. And that's, that's been the much more typical way that people behaved appallingly in history. This, this sort of um, weird loner celebrity seeker thing, I'm sure it existed before, but it started to become prominent. I, I want to say something I've never said publicly before, but it's just been gnawing at me for many years. I'm old enough to have had some contact back in the day with uh, both Marshall McLuhan and Andy Warhol, who were two figures who had a kind of a lucid way of talking about this early, but they didn't condemn it. They just stood aloof and said, oh, we're super smart and wise for being able to see this happening. And what they should have done is they should have said, this is shit. And I, I act, it's actually really been bothering me. I've never said that before. I feel it should be said. Because once again, the first people on the scene sometimes have a kind of a vision, and they should be judgmental about it, the way E.M. Forster was. Um, and I feel like they maybe failed us morally at that point, because they saw it better than a lot of other people, maybe than anybody at that time. Anyway, that's maybe not useful to say now, but at some point it has to be said. Let's fast forward a little bit. Computation starts to get cheap enough that it's starting to creep out of the lab. This is the early 1980s. And here we hit another juncture. Um, there was this thing that happened. Oh, man, I was right there for it. Um, it was the birth of the open free software idea. There was a friend of mine named Richard Stallman. Richard, I wonder if, any chance Richard's here? 
No, I guess not. Anyway, you never know. Once in a while, I'll show up at things. Anyway, Richard um, had this horrible, he, like, one day he just started saying, oh, my God, my, my girlfriend's been killed. My, my lover's been killed. It's like, oh, my God, that's horrible. But what it really was was the software system he'd been working on for this kind of computer, and what had happened is it had gone into a commercial mode where the companies, and it was a thing called the Lisp machine, which probably nobody remembers anymore, a sort of early attempt to make an AI specialized computer, and um, he, uh, he was so upset, he, said, he sort of melded his anger about this with a kind of an anti-capitalist feeling, he said, no, software must be free, it must be just this thing that's distributed, it can't be property, property is theft, and it, it really spoke to a lot of people. It, it melded with, with these other ideas that were going on at the time. And so it, it became this kind of feeling, I would say sort of a leftist feeling that was profound and remains to this day. A lot of times if somebody wants to do something useful with tech, they'll have to put in the word open source. Lately, they also have to put in blockchain. And so very typically, they'll be saying, it's open source, it's got blockchain. And then, <laughs> then you know it's good. Um, so uh, there was this other thing going on, which was this feeling that the purpose of computers was to hide. Um, and that's, that deserves a little bit of explanation. Um, there were, America's always had this divide, this red-blue divide or whatever. Remember, it used to be a north-south divide. We, we, we fought one of history's horrible wars once as a civil war. Um, and so people on what we call now the red side of the divide were very upset uh, there was a Democratic president named Jimmy Carter that a few people other than me in the room might be old enough to remember. And there was a period when there was an Arab oil embargo and we, did, we had long lines at gas stations and he imposed a 55 mile an hour speed limit on the freeways, which a lot of people really hated because they wanted to drive fast. And so this thing sprang up called CB radio. And CB radios were these little analog radios you'd install in your car and you'd create a false persona, a handle, and then you'd warn other people about where the police were hiding so that you could all drive fast collectively by sharing information. And it was all anonymous, so you could never trace it. And this thing was huge. This had as high a profile at the time as Twitter does today, probably. There were songs celebrating it. It was a really big deal. But then on the left side of America, on the blue side, people also wanted to hide. And in that case, um, there were two things going on. One is the draft hadn't quite died down, and it was still the Vietnam era, and that was just terrifying because people didn't really believe in that war, and the idea of being drafted into this horribly violent war that appeared to have no good purpose just absolutely broke people's hearts and terrified people, so they wanted to hide, and a lot of people did. And then there was marijuana and the drug laws. And a lot of people really were hiding from those as well. So you basically had both red and blue America feeling like the number one priority for freedom, for goodness, is to be able to hide from the government. So uh, encryption and hiding and fake personas became this celebrated thing. So um, this, in this milieu, there was this idea that Online networking, which didn't really exist yet. I mean, we had networks, but they were all very specialized and isolated. There wasn't a broad internet yet. There would be this idea that everything would be free and open. Everything would be uh, anonymous, and it would just be like this giant, black, weird place where you, everything, you never knew anything, but you were also free and nobody could find you.
Mm, okay, so that was that was the starting idea. There were a few other things that fed into it. Another thing was that there was a famous rock band called the Grateful Dead that encouraged people to tape their songs and didn't care about piracy and all this. There were all these different factors. Now, all of this was going on, and then simultaneously this other thing happened, which is we started to have the figure of the glorified, practically superhuman tech entrepreneur. Uh, and these were in the 80s. These were figures like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, people we still remember, of course. Bill's still with us. And they were just worshipped. They were the coolest people ever. Well, around around here in California, people hated Bill, but they loved Steve. Um, and there was this kind of interesting problem, which is we not we didn't just like our tech entre entrepreneurs. We made them into sort of superhuman figures. Um, the, the the phrase "dent the universe" is associated with Jobs. It's this notion that. There's this, this kind of Nietzschean superpower to create the flow of reality, to direct the future, because you're the tech entrepreneur, and computation is reality, and, and the way we set these architectures will create future societies, and that'll ultimately change the shape of the universe once we get even greater powers over physics. And there was just like this no end to the fantastical thinking. We were at the birth point for every form of absolute godlike, you know, immortality and shape-shifting and every crazy thing. I was a little bit of that. I'm sorry to say I, was, I kind of got a little off. I, I, I was <laughs> pretty intense in the 80s myself. Um, but anyway, um, there was this feeling that the entrepreneur could just, just like was, had more cosmic power than the average person. Okay, so now here you have a dilemma that had been kind of sneaking up and nobody had really faced it. On the one hand, everything's supposed to be free, everything's supposed to be anonymous, everything is supposed to be like this completely open thing. But on the other hand, we love our entrepreneurs, we worship our entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs are inventing reality. So it should be clear that there's a bit of a potential conflict here. Everything must be free, but we worship entrepreneurs. Hmm, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? And so a set of compromises were created over the years that ended up giving us the worst of both sides of that, I would say. So I'll give you, the, the story is, is uh, long and interesting, but I'll give you just a few highlights. One thing that happened is when we finally got around to actually creating the internet, we decided it had to be super bare bones. It would represent machines, because without having a number representing a machine, you can't have an internet, but it wouldn't represent people. It didn't intrinsically have accounts built in for humans. It had no storage for humans built in. It had no transactions. It had no authentication. It had no persistence of information guaranteed. It had no historical function. It, had, it was like super bare bones. Just this thing connects with that thing. That's all it did. And the reason why was that we were supposed to leave room for future entrepreneurs, those who we worshipped. Now, the internet, um, so if I was about to say the internet, as you know, was invented by Al Gore, some of you would laugh. And that's because it was a laugh line for a while, because he was a Democratic, uh, he was a vice president, and before that a senator from Tennessee, and he was accused of overclaiming that he'd invented the internet on a TV show, which didn't happen. However, I think he should claim it. I think he did invent it. He didn't invent it technologically, not at all. All of the underlying stuff, which is called a packet switch network and a few other uh, elements, that existed in lots of instances from before. 
he had this idea of throwing some government money into it to bribe everybody to become interoperable so there'd just be one damn network and people could actually connect. That really was him, and he, he deserves credit for having done that, unless you think it was a terrible idea. But when that was happening, I remember having conversations about it. It's like, we, by creating this thing in such an incredibly bare-bones way, we are creating gifts of hundreds of billions of dollars for persons unknown who will be required to fill in these missing things that everybody knows have to be filled in. Um, and then a little while later, this other thing happened, which is Tim Berners-Lee, who's great, came up with the World Wide Web Protocol. And here, he did this thing. <laughs> um, up to that point, all of the ideas for how to create shared, you know, shareable media experiences online, which are called um, hypertext, after Ted Nelson, who'd come up with the first network design back in 1960. The HTTP is, from, is for hypertext. They, a core tenet of these is that any time one thing on the internet pointed at something else, that other thing had to know it was being pointed at so that there were two-way links. You always knew who was pointing at you. And the reason for that is that way you could preserve context, provenance, history, um, you could create chains of payment where if people mashed up stuff from somebody else and that person mashed up from somebody else, you could create payments that would populate back to pay for everybody who contributed. So if you wanted to have a, an economy of information, you could. The information wouldn't be dropped. But Tim just had one-way links. You could point at somebody they had no idea they were being pointed at. And the reason for that is that it's just to actually do the two-way links is genuinely a pain in the butt. It's just more work. If you do one-way links, the whole thing could spread a lot faster. Anybody can do it. It's just a much easier system. And that embedded in it not only this idea of virality um, or memeiness, where whatever can spread the fastest is what wins. And so it was a quantity over quality thing, in my view. That was another thing that happened. So... Uh, Another thing that happened didn't come from Silicon Valley. In the late 80s, people on Wall Street started to use automated trading. And the first flash crash from out-of-control trading algorithms was 89. Um, and they figured out something <laughs> very basic, although Ian e. Forster had described exactly this problem so much earlier, which is that if you had a bigger computer than everybody else and it was more central, getting more information, you could calculate ahead of everybody and gain an information advantage. And in economics, information advantage is everything. So if you had just a little bit more information than everybody else, you could just turn that into money. And uh, it wasn't really new insight, but it had actually been implemented before. Then shortly after that, a company called Walmart realized they could apply that not just to financial instruments and to investments, but to the real world. And they created a software model of their supply chain and dominated it. They could go to anybody who was involved somewhere in giving them products and figure out what their bottom line was so they could negotiate everybody down. They knew who everybody's competitor was. They went into every negotiation with superior information. And they built this giant retail empire on information superiority. That all happened before anybody in Silicon Valley started doing it. Okay, now fast forward to the birth of Google. So you have these super bright kids, Sergey and Larry. Some of the students I talked to today on campus here remind me of what they were like at the same age. Super bright, super optimistic, idealistic actually, focused. Um, and <clears throat> they were backed into a corner in my view. On the one hand, 
the whole hacker community, the whole tech community would have just slammed them if they did anything other than everything being free. But on the other hand, everybody wanted them to be the next Steve Jobs, the next Bill Gates. That was like practically a hunger, like we want, we want our next star. And the only way to combine the two things was the advertising model. The advertising model would say, you'll get everything for free. You can be, you know, as far as you're concerned, your experience is you just ask for what you want and we give it to you. Now the problem with that is that because it's an advertising thing, you're actually being observed. Your information is being taken, you're being watched, and there's a true customer, this other person off to the side, who at first you were always aware of because you could see their little ads, you know, they're like if you're local dentist or whatever, it was cute at first, it was harmless at first. Um, and unfortunately, if they'd come up with this thing after, I don't know, Moore's Law had ended and computers were as fast as they were ever going to get, and we'd established a whole regulatory and ethical substrate for computation and everything, maybe it could have worked. But instead, they did it in a period where there was still a whole lot of Moore's Law to happen. So all the computers got faster and faster, cheaper and cheaper, more and more plentiful, more and more storage, more and more connection. The algorithms got better and better. Machine learning kind of started to work a little better. A lot of these algorithms kind of, kind of figured it out. We had enough computation to do experiments and, and get all kinds of things working that hadn't worked before. All kinds of little machine vision things. I sold them a machine vision company, actually. Um, and the whole thing kind of accelerated, and what started out as an advertising model turned into something very different. And so here we get into our description of, at least my perception, of the state that we're in right now. So I mentioned earlier that Norbert Wiener had described what he viewed as a potentially horrible outcome for the future of computation, where you'd have a computer in real time observing a person with sensors and providing stimulus to that person in some form with displays or other effectors and implementing behavior modification feedback loops in order to influence the person. And if that was done globally, it would detach humanity from reality and bring our species to an end. That was the fear back in the 50s. Now, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this innocent little advertising model which was supposed to address both the desire to have everything be this wild west open thing and the desire to have entrepreneurs, despite everything being free, landed us right in that pocket. That's exactly where we went. Now, I should say a bit about behaviorism because that's another historical thread that led to where we are. Behaviorism is a discipline of reducing the number of variables in the training of an organism so that you can characterize them rigorously and reproduce effects. So let's say um, if you're whispering into your horse's ear while you're training your horse, that's not behaviorism. If you're whispering into your kid's ear, even if you do offer some treats once in a while to encourage behavior, that's not behaviorism. It, it has elements of it. But Hardcore behaviorism reduces the variables and it says, look, what we want to do is we want to isolate, we want to say, here's this organism, it's in a box. Sometimes they're called Skinner boxes, remembering B.F. Skinner, one of the famous behaviorists. And we want to say, if the creature, person, human, whatever, does a certain thing you want, you give the person a treat. Does something you don't want, give them a punishment, typically maybe 
Andy and Electric Shock, the timing and the occurrence of these things is guided by an algorithm. You fine-tune the algorithm and you need to discover how to change behavior patterns. This science of studying behavior, behaviorism um, yielded surprises, really interesting surprises. Very early on, the first celebrity behaviorist was probably Pavlov. You've all heard of Pavlov, I'm sure. And he demonstrated famously that he could get a dog to salivate upon hearing a bell, whereas previously the dog salivated upon being given food and hearing the bell. So he was able to create a purely symbolic stimulus to replace the original concrete one. That's quite important because in many areas today where behavior is modified and addictions are created, they're only abstract stimuli. This is true, for instance, for gambling. So modern gambling is based on this. So are like little games like Candy Crush where they have pictures of candy instead of real candy. Now, I have no doubt someday there'll be some Facebook or Google um, hovercraft you know, drone over your head that drops real candy and electric shocks on your head. But for the moment, we're in this symbolic realm that, that Pavlov uncovered. Another amazing result is that you might think naively that simply providing punishment and reward as reliably and as immediately as possible would be the most effective way to change behavior patterns, but actually that's not true. It turns out that adding an element of randomness makes the algorithms more effective. Um, so uh, we don't fully just to state the obvious, nobody really understands the brain as yet, but it appears that the brain is, is constantly in a natural state of seeking patterns, of trying to understand the world. So if you provide a slightly randomized feedback pattern, it, it doesn't confuse or repel the brain, instead it draws the brain in. The brain is thinking, oh, there must be something more to understand, there must be something more. And gradually you're drawn in more and more and more. And so um, this is why the randomness of when you win at gambling is actually part of the addiction algorithm. That's part of what makes it happen. Now, in the case of social media, what happens is the reward is when you get retweeted or you go viral, something like that. The term of art in Silicon Valley com companies is usually a dopamine hit, which is not an entirely accurate description, but it's the one that, that's most commonly used for when you have a quick rise of a positive reward. But just as the gambler becomes addicted to the whole cycle, where they're losing more often than they win, a Twitter addict gets addicted to the whole cycle where they're most often being, being uh, punished by other people who are tweeting and they only get a win once in a while, right? It's the same, it's the same algorithm. And indeed, um, one of the side effects uh, so, it, it, the, the, in the trade, the terminology we use is engagement. We have algorithms that drive engagement. And we hire zillions of people with recent PhDs from psych departments. There's a whole program, there's a program called Persuasive Technology at Stanford where you can go get a PhD in this. And then you get hired by some tech company to drive engagement. But it's, it's really just a sanitized word for addiction. 
So we drive addiction using a variety of these algorithms, and we can study them more than the classical behaviorists ever did because we can study 100 million instances at once, and and uh, and we can put out 100 million variations on all kinds of people and correlate it with data for all those people, and then cycle and cycle and cycle. The algorithms can find new pockets of efficacy. They can tweak themselves until they work better, and we don't even know why. They're far ahead of any ability we have to really keep up with them and try to interpret exactly why some things work better than other things. Now, even so, it's important to get this right. The effect is, in a way, not that dramatic. So Facebook, for instance, has published research bragging that it can make people sad, and they don't realize that they were made sad by Facebook. Now, by the way, you might wonder, why would Facebook publish that? <laughs> Wouldn't they want to hide that fact? It sounds pretty bad. But you have to remember that you're not the customer of Facebook. The customer is the person off to the side. We've created a world in which anytime two people connect online, it's financed by a third person who believes they can manipulate the first two. So to the degree Facebook can, can convince that that third party, that mysterious other who's hoping to have influence, that they can have some mystical, magical, unbounded, sneaky form of influence, then Facebook makes more money. That's why they published it. And I, I've been at events where this stuff is sold by the various tech companies, and they, there's no end to the brags and the exaggerations when it comes to telling the true customers what their powers are. Very different from their public stance. But at any rate, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh... So I'm going to stop it right there. Thank you so much if you decide to stay with me up until this point. It's very much appreciated. Uh, if you got any feedback or any comments and or questions in relationship to this lecture, definitely don't be afraid to reach out. Um, I love to hear the feedback that I get on a regular basis. And um, I love to answer any questions you guys may have. And uh, I love it when you decide to interact. So um, I'm going to leave it there for today. And uh, thanks so much for joining me. Madam Butterfly out.